it's a very unique group of people that could execute on the goal that they set when they were 10 years old. And then when that goal is over and you didn't have another dream, then it's very easily to get into the routine and not feel the purpose in your life. Welcome to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, an emergency vet in D.C. And I'm Phil Zeltzman, a board-certified small animal surgeon in Pennsylvania. We would like to thank our beloved partners. First, we have five elite partners, Care Credit, the popular third-party payment, Royal Canin, maker of fine pet food, Televet, a platform that offers telemedicine, remote payments, and communication tools for clients. Galaxy Vets, a new corporate group that allows all employees access to equity in the company. And Eckerd Enterprises, which offers a way to invest passively through what they call mineral rights, which is essentially oil and gas. And then we have our gold partner, Vedex International, which is an amazing group led by Dave Nickel and they help vets learn the professional skills needed to thrive in practice. So thank you to our partners. Our guest today is Ivan Zak, in short. Dr. Zak is a vet, an MBA holder, a serial entrepreneur, and a passionate advocate for the well-being of veterinary professionals. After founding SmartFlow and Vet Integration Solutions, he recently founded Galaxy Vets, which we're going to talk about today. Ivan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So before you ask, we ask you really profound and challenging questions, I think it's important to understand your trajectory in life and in vet med. Uh, and of course, we only have so much time. So can you give us a quick summary? And maybe if you don't mind, can we please start with the origin of your name? What is your full name? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, my full name is Ivan Zek Karenkov, and I'm originally from Ukraine. But when I was running SmartFlow, I really like marketing and marketing experiments. So I thought maybe people are not excited to get an email from some Russian guy. And I ran an experiment on two and a half thousand emails. And it turned out that 17% less people open an email with my full name as a Zek Karenkov compared to Ivan Zek. So I shortened my name for marketing purposes. <laughs> Got it. Give us a summary of your life story. Yeah, you, uh, you said that you're not going to ask difficult questions first and about life trajectory. I think that's, <laughs> for some people, maybe that's very difficult. But uh, where I've been so far, so I'm a vet by trade, moved to Canada about 20 years ago with a vet degree from Ukraine, uh, which allowed me, uh, as uh, it usually does for newcomers, to work in the vet clinic as a janitor. So <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that was my start as a veterinary in a veterinary world in North America. So I moved to Toronto and I wanted to go back into sort of veterinary field, but I knew that it's impossible with my license. So I wanted just to get a feel from what it is. And all I could get is the kennel attendant for four hours. And then after 8 p.m. for four hours, cleaning the hospital that I worked in. And then I, instead of trying to write the exams, I ended up applying to vet school again. So I was admitted to Atlantic Vet College on PEI in Canada which uh, I was very excited about. And uh, so I ended up doing uh, second vet school. Right after vet school, I had an interesting uh, journey. I wanted to be a, a radiologist and I lined up the job in British Columbia in Canada, but I ended up going to Russia 
to learn how to do surgeries because they have very good surgeons there and realized that they don't have a lab in, in Russia and decided to build the first diagnostic lab in Russian Federation. And so I did that right out of vet school, which was a bit weird experience, and then came back to Canada, worked for 12 years as a veterinarian. Part of my uh, sort of career is that I did burn out in about sixth year of my practice, being an emergency veterinarian. Usually, uh, I thought that I will be working four nights and then six days off, and I ended up working four nights and then six days relief vet, and then another four nights and then another six days relief work, as a lot of vets do. And it turned out to be a recipe for disaster, which I experienced and almost left profession for, well, I did leave profession for six months. And then with some professional help, uh, I came back to veterinary medicine, continued to work in as ER vet, then built SmartFlow, which was interesting. So I pivoted from being an emergency veterinarian and um, having an exposure to many different workflows as a relief vet. Uh, I built SmartFlow, which some people maybe heard of, which is a workflow optimization system or just a whiteboard if, uh, if you don't want to be fancy about it. And I ended up building that and improving workflow in about 650 hospitals before it was acquired by IDEX. And then I joined IDEX for a short period of time as a general manager of their software division. And then uh, from that left, build VIS, as you mentioned, and now we're building Galaxy. Perfect. That's the story. Thank you. All right, quite the journey. So, Ivan, so you just released your new burnout study in the veterinary profession. And so what were the main findings in 2021? So we did. The, uh, the interesting part about this study is that we confirmed a couple of things that we discovered last year, and we saw the progression of actually a degree of burnout in the industry. So now we're seeing the trend that is getting worse, uh, and it's not a surprise with the COVID and everything. We did see that, again, younger veterinarians burn out more than those that are more senior. We also confirmed that, uh, which was my interesting, so one, one thing that we wanted to study more in this particular survey, uh, whether goal setting affects people's happiness. And that was my theory. I thought that veterinarians are such an achievers and, and A players and perfectionists that they have this set goal to become a veterinarian. But I felt like one of the reasons why potentially veterinarians burn out is that as they graduate, then that goal that they were reaching for for about 20 years now achieved. And those that don't set further goals, don't specialize like Phil maybe to become a boarded surgeon or didn't seek for additional education internship, then everything just stops. And then you're just poking vaccines in the GP practice, and at some point that becomes a redundant and you burn out. And it looks like that data suggests that people that do set the long and short-term goals are happier than those that don't. So I was really, really interested in that finding. We did confirm again that technicians are way more burned out than the veterinarians, and we really need to pay attention. And then we also found that uh, the diversity influences the questions of diversity or influence the degree of burnout. And so that was an interesting finding that we'll research a little bit more going forward. That's interesting. So goal setting, is it any particular type of goal setting or specific career goals? So I think we didn't specify. We were just asking a question about whether you do you or do you not. And when, when I'm talking about goal setting, it's not the New Year's resolutions. They could be goals, but those are usually fading away by the end of January, together with the desire to go to the gym. 
one of them usually is on my list <laughs> and uh and then i mean structured way of thinking where do i want to be in five years what am i what is my goal what am i trying to do because if you think about it when veterinarians decide to be veterinarians it usually happens early anybody who i ask it's like i was 10 years old when i decided to be a vet i always wanted to be a vet so that goal is almost like a 20-year mark that people continuously go towards and and veterinarians are a very well selected group of people because those that can be that competitive in their bachelor, those that can be as competitive to get into the vet school, which is 13 people per seat, and those that can complete this vet school, which is one of the hardest schools in North America, then it's a very unique group of people that could execute on the goal that they set when they were 10 years old. And then when that goal is over and you didn't have another dream, then it's very easily to get into the routine and not feel the purpose in your life. So I'm talking about where do I see myself? How do you imagine myself after I graduate? Do I want to be, you know, this person who owns a hospital? Or what's my next thing? Do I want to earn a certain amount of money? And this is what my house will look like or my spouse or my family, kids, five dogs, whatever that is. If you don't have that dream that you set yourself to work towards, then it could be one of the triggers of burnout because you don't see the purpose of what you do and how you live. Okay, that makes perfect sense. And so it's not just veterinarians who are burning out, it's also our team members. And so how can employers help their teams improve work-life balance? Well, there's there's quite a few things that uh, that we talk about when it comes to improving. And there's, you know, we, we make recommendations. You actually can read about the, all the findings and everything that we recommend you know, on our website on the vetintegrations.com uh, in the burnout section. Actually, we work a lot on that. But uh, some of the things that we recommend is actually, well, for one, is to help structure the goals. So when someone is joining you, especially a new grad in the clinic, a lot of the times you hear, for example, consolidators they're providing or individual clinic owners, they provide the continuous education. Usually it's in a form of a lump sum once a year. You can go to a conference and allocate this cost to it. What it ends up being is that I'm flying to, you know, to a trade show to meet with my classmates, hang out at the bar, maybe visit three lectures, hope that I'm registered for those and that they accounted for my CE and then go back home. That's not a goal. That's just hanging out with friends. If you want to structure that and help your veterinarians to have a goal in education, maybe someone wants to learn how to do an ultrasound or a particular surgical procedures. And it doesn't have to be the full-blown residency. I'm really attracted right now to the theory of micro-learning and micro-credentials. If you're an ER clinic, for example, you could say we have three levels of ER doctors. Those that you know can remove a spleen, can do the gastropexy, can do this, this, that. And then just kind of structure those and create buckets of things to learn so people can actually achieve them and receive that dose of dopamine every time they achieve a certain goal in education. But you help them structure that. So when they're flying to that next conference, a part of what you wanted to learn this year is to do ultrasound. So at this conference, there's a wet lab teaching how to do abdominal ultrasound or chest ultrasound or heart ultrasound, whatever that is. But basically help set those goals. Another thing that really is important is and if you can uh, eliminate the competitiveness through the commission-based pay one of the things that really work on uh, on, on the, that contribute to burnout is inability to provide care to those animals that need care because of the financial goals that are set to the veterinarian or the lack of finances that that the owner can pay so our economic euthanasia as some people use the term 
is taking a toll on our profession. So one side of things, don't make people try to generate their income through the commission-based pay. If you can, equalize it through different instruments and pay bonuses or something like that. And then the other one, if you can, provide structured ways of paying for the procedures through care credit and other things so there's less economic euthanasia. So that's, that's another one that has been circulated a lot in the communities that that contributes to burnout. The other one is, I was just talking to a new grad yesterday uh, that works in North Carolina. She's looking for the next sort of career step. And the trajectory on which we set up the young graduates is through the vet school, we all work crazy hours to get to this degree. Then we stay in the teaching hospital as, you know, with the interns and overnight. I worked through entire vet school. I worked in the overnight hospital. So we're set to be these exhausted people and this heroism in how we achieve these uh, results is set into a profession going forward. And if you do internship, that's even worse because we're working our interns to be these heroes, not sleeping for 20 hours straight, doing all these cases and then saying, oh, overnight I had these 15 cases, I participated in three surgeries. Don't promote that heroism because people think that that's what you should be doing. I felt that way. This is how I burned out. I worked in emergency and then every time you know, I'd do 20-hour shifts, and then I would feel like I'm a hero, and that doesn't help anybody. So that contributes to burnout a lot as well. So those are kind of like several instruments. Yeah, and everything you said is sadly very true. Many of us have been there. So during a previous conversation, you said that you have a system to classify or strategize or organize projects in the most logical order possible. Can you please share that with us? Yeah, that's more related to the goal setting as an organization, if you will. I think that we were discussing the way of prioritizing things if you're a management team. And I mentioned the method that we use in our company and, and that we were teaching other consolidators, which is called weighted shortest job first. And it, it helps a lot. You can actually use it in personal life as well. When you're thinking, what do I need to do first? A lot of the times companies will set, you know, 56 goals between five leaders and then they will all take 10 you know to 15 each and then you end up at the end of the quarter and you're not completing half or 70 percent of them because you're actually grabbing a little bit of everything and then they're all sort of in progress there's a there's a great saying in the in the kanban methodology stop starting and start finishing that's the sort of the principle take one task at a time complete it and finish it but then you need to understand what to take first. So this weighted shortest job first methodology, it really helps you to understand how to evaluate the tasks and prioritize them based on the cost of delay. So it's one of the factors that you can assess is basically how much it's going to cost me not doing something first. So you have three different tasks and there is various ways of assessing that, but basically I'm not going to go deep into the methodology. You can read about it also on bedintegrations.com in the consolidator operating framework, and there's a part about prioritization. But essentially what you want to do is to understand what is the most expensive thing not to do now, and then you divide that by an expected duration, how long it will take to do that. So for example, if we have you know two things we want to do in the clinic, and we want to buy an ultrasound and teach everybody to do you know ultrasound-guided uh, urine collection, for example. I don't know. That's a service that we want to provide. And then you put that against the other service, which is we want to replace our x-ray with a digital radiography because we want to increase the number of x-rays. 
So you would see that probably the cost of delaying the x-rays is much higher than the ultrasound because the revenue that you will generate on x-rays is probably much higher than you know ultrasound guided cysto. Hopefully you buy an ultrasound for other reasons. This may be not a very good example. But essentially, if you clearly see that one task will bring more revenue, that's the first one to take. But what is the duration of implementation of, of these two? And x-rays, basically, you will install it, teach people, and they will just start using it. With the ultrasound, I think there's a little more training than, than taking x-rays. So again, the duration is uh, probably shorter with, with the x-rays. So you divide cost of delay by duration, and that way you arrive to a very well-articulated list of items that are prioritized based on those two factors. So you use a, a number, a ratio, instead of making stuff up in your head. And you vote on this too. So uh, if, you, if you are the team of people that are prioritizing these things, which is very good to do in a quarterly basis if you're an organization that does that, then you have all the leaders to sit down and say, we think it's a duration, and you take an arbitrary number like 10 out of 10. We think it's 8 compared to another one that is 7. And then that item is a probably 2 because it's very quick to implement. And then another one is... 10. So you can actually vote on these and then you're writing to two numbers and then by dividing one with another one, you actually write to a very well structured list of things how to do it. Great. Thank you. All right. I love what you said, Ivan, this uh, stop starting and start finishing. Yep. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can all learn from that. So let's go back to your journey for a little bit. So for the past three years, you've been consulting with veterinary consolidators. And so what did you learn doing that? So the, the reason why I started doing that, uh, when I left IDEX, I was finishing my MBA degree. And what I was trying to do at the end of it, I, I, I needed to pick a thesis for my dissertation. And because I was passionate about the topic of burnout, I wanted to see if there are other professions or other verticals where they solve this problem. So I picked healthcare as the closest one. And then I was looking for different methodologies that they use there. And I bumped into an organization called Catalysis, and they implemented Lean. So if anybody heard about Lean, Lean is sort of came from Toyota, manufacturer Ford. They use this Lean methodology, and it's essentially eliminating waste along the axis of value creation in the organization. So whatever the production line, if you can imagine it, you just eliminate uh, things that don't contribute to value creation. It's either waiting too long for the parts to come in this is if it relates to manufacture or walking too far to get something so there's a bunch of little pieces that don't contribute to value creation so you eliminate all of that and create a lean process now they replicated it to the healthcare and that also added a lot of principles and um, it's not only about eliminating extra things that are done but also what they articulated in the healthcare industry, it's respecting people that do the work. So essentially, it's based around looking at what the staff that is actually bringing value, so the nurses and the doctors, what do they do on a day-to-day -day basis to complete their work? And if executive teams don't know how that is done, then you're not really managing your organization well. So I traveled across U.S. into several very large hospitals, San Francisco General, Boston General, and then I saw how executives are running this lean operation process. And it really, it felt like it's contributing to the happiness of the people that do this work because they're heard by their management teams. So I thought it was fascinating. I was trying to replicate the same concept. So this catalysis organization is consulting multiple hospitals across the world. So I was hoping to build something like that that will be consulting veterinary medicine. 
But the challenge that I saw is that in healthcare, it's very large organizations. If, if they want to deploy something across the organization, there's a very well-defined hierarchical management structure where you can actually say, I don't know, we're replacing all computers, all Dell computers with Apple. And it's one order and it's done across the organization of like 8,000 people. But in veterinary medicine, we're talking about small brick and mortar clinics that have, you know, 20 to 30 to maybe 50, maybe 100 people, but it's, it's small isolated units. So you can't really deploy anything in the clinics and correct the, um, the, the industry as a whole. And that's what I was hoping that we can combat this burnout and happiness of veterinarians with some sort of management methodology. So I wrote this dissertation about how they do it in healthcare and with a hypothesis, can we apply it to veterinary medicine? And as master's degrees, you, you don't have to apply it, you just have to hypothesize something and you're done. Uh, in PhD, you actually have to do experiment, but I was lucky I didn't have to do that. So, but when I wrote that, I thought, can we apply it to our vertical somehow? And then I realized that we have these organizations, the consolidators, that do have large structure and they have, you know, the young ones have like 20, 30 hospitals. Some of them have hundreds, some of them have 400 hospitals. So I thought that if I will inspire them to take care not only of business, but people as well, then we could potentially implement something like that. And uh, the challenge that I found is that they all like the business and the management methodology that we came up with. We really created the framework on how to build consolidation from ground up. From the time you just have an idea and you just have a presentation that you can show to investors and first clinics that you will acquire to the you know 300 hospital unit that is fully operational with all the departments across the United States. They all liked our management theory, but none of them really bought into the idea that you need to take care of people, which was very surprising to me with everything that's going on in our domain and the scarcity of the human resources, not enough veterinarians, most clinics are booking three weeks ahead, most emergencies are full and it's six to 10 hour wait in big cities. And that's because we don't have enough vets. 40% of vets want to quit our profession because of lack of work-life balance and disconnection of core values. So when but not now is to start taking care of people so you retain these human resources. And none of them were particularly interested in those strategies. So that's what in three years, we learned a lot about consolidation we learned a lot about how to build consolidation, and we learned that they're not particularly interested in people and their well-being in our domain. All right. So, Ivan, I'm just curious, um, with, with that answer, were you working with smaller consolidators, medium-sized consolidators? Uh, there, there are so many, so many different sizes. Well, I think that what we developed, one of the instruments that we developed, it's called the consolidator maturity model. What I figured out, and the reason why we developed it is because I realized it's not about the number of clinics, it's about of uh, the maturity of their processes and the structure. So when you build a consolidation, you're building what's called platform, and platform is sort of the combination of systems, people, and processes. And then it depends how well developed your platform. You can have 10 clinics in your mature organization that has well-developed platform with goal, strategy, a strategic filter, prioritization techniques, and you can be a 400 and be a mess. So we worked with anybody from the number of clinics, probably up to 100 clinics. But from maturity level, most of them were not very well developed, uh, and that's why they were looking for our help. And, uh, and what we were doing, we were basically we could level them where they are today and help them clearly articulate where they should be as a next step and what is their roadmap to get there. 
Okay, that makes sense. And so you made, uh, as a lot of consultants do, you gave a lot of advice that people didn't necessarily take. Uh, that is the, the, the sort of the, the, the destiny of every consultancy that you assess them well. And, you know, the McKinsey is one of the good examples of that. They spend a lot of time and money to assess uh, the state of the state. Then they spend a lot of time to put together a plan. And then that plan usually goes nowhere. So, yes, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. And so why did you decide to make a switch and start your own group and start Galaxy Vets? Well, that, that, that is a perfect segue to sort of what I described, because what we realized, we now have a very tangible and uh, practical way of building consolidation, no matter what level you are. But then we also realized that if we want to have this purpose of improving veterinary medicine for the people that work in veterinary medicine, not only the cap table or the, the P&L of the headquarters, then because they don't want to learn about this, we decided that we should build it ourselves the way we're seeing it. So not consult anymore, but be the management team that actually will build it with people in mind. And that was the origin of Galaxy Vets healthcare system. And the reason why we call it healthcare system, because we thought that we could cover a lot of aspects of veterinary medicine. And then our experience in the operations of veterinary hospitals will help not only to acquire hospitals, which most of the consolidators have as only part of their thesis, because a lot of them are saying we're going to buy and improve, but they end up buying 30, 40, and then they look back and say, okay, how do we improve now? And then they realize, oh, it's too hard because we're not from this industry. So we're not going to do that. We're just going to buy a hundred and then resell it to someone bigger like Mars or JB. And then we thought that with the team that I have, that we're very specialized in the operational efficiency of the hospitals. So we can truly create an environment in which we will partner all the veterinarians within one system. We'll give the ownership of the whole healthcare system to the veterinarians and veterinary professionals. And then we will have the, the purpose of the organization to improve the quality of life of the veterinarians that work within it. So that was really the motivation behind it. Can you please elaborate? How, how does your equity program work? So there, there was two things that I realized that we we're going to be working against by building a new group. One is there's extreme multiples right now on the market. And if we can't compete with those multiples to uh, the veterinarians that are selling their practices, then we wouldn't be attractive to anybody to join us. So we worked against that by basically taking less money from institutional investors and allowing the veterinarians to invest more of their proceeds from the acquisition into the parent organization, so into the Galaxy Healthcare System. So essentially, everybody who joins us, they roll more than usually is allowed by private equity. They allow 10, 15%, and then they own uh, more of the parent company, essentially making veterinary medicine healthcare system owned by veterinarians, which is not the case with private equity. That was, the, that was one part, and we, we figured out how to do that. The second part was that there's not enough veterinarians. And what would be attractive to veterinarians and technicians that are also in scarcity right now to work for a new structure? Because there's 50 consolidators and they're all saying the same wonderful thing. UBU will help you to stand up the, the sort of back office systems and then uh, life is going to be amazing. It's just basically the same thesis for everybody. And then at the end of the day, they come in, they change everything, and then um, and then processes change, the way they want to build change. They then start squeezing veterinarians and trying to say that you're not performing well. But then at the end of the day, everybody who's working in this organization 
they will be doing these extra efforts for the owners of the organization, which is which are private equity. And basically, uh, I thought that the goal of every organization is to bring the return on investment to the shareholders, which means that those that are backed by private equity, they're doing the right thing. They're doing the best they can do to bring the return on investment to private equity. But that doesn't satisfy people that work in the organization. So I thought that if we will provide equity to everybody who works in the organization, including ER vets, associate vets, relief veterinarians that are also getting equity in our organization, technicians, and the receptionists. So if everybody gets shares, therefore everything you do is for the same reason, you're trying to perform well to bring the return on investment to your shareholders, but the shareholders are everybody in the organization. And uh, so our, well, not just hypothesis, but uh, it's, it's been already proven so that people want to work in the organization that they also know. So that's how we arrived to that. So to summarize, it's not only doctors who will benefit from the shared ownership. It's also the nurses and the receptionists. It's everybody in the organization. Well, not only the, because uh, because traditionally it's the doctor that owns the practice, then sells it, and then eventually has to bring the news to the whole team. And usually it's kind of covered by, I found a great home for us. There's a great organization that will take care of you. But essentially it's one person capitalizing. And it's a normal thing. It's the person who built the business. But then what's, what happens after acquisition, then everybody who feels like they were helping to build this organization, now they belong to another entity and they didn't participate in the upside. So not only the technicians and receptionists and everybody who works in the hospital, but also those veterinarians that didn't have ownership. So with this transaction now, the message changes dramatically because whoever owns the hospital, they come in and say, we just partnered up with someone that I gave part of the ownership of our hospital and you all get a part of it as well. You're all getting a part of the, um, the parent organization. And that doesn't mean that we're taking it out from the seller. There's a completely different mechanism how we create in the, the upside that will be shared by all. Okay, so if a listener were considering selling their practice to anybody, what's the number one question you think they should ask potential buyers? And then what's the second question? Uh, well, the first one is, when is your next investment horizon? Because if someone comes in and says, we are not going to change anything, we're going to help you to run business and you stay veterinarian. And then if their next horizon for recapitalization is in two years, that means that for two years, they'll let you do whatever you want. And then they will sell you to someone else and then they don't care. So technically they actually did do what they say, but now they're not owning it. They just, they, they left. Now you have another organization that will tell you everything that they want to change and you don't have a say in it. So that probably is to me the question that nobody ever asks because these stories are repeatable by 50 consolidators right now, but they're not here for long. They're not here to stay. So that's probably number one. I think number two question will be interesting. If someone is telling you that we're all about people, which a lot of these consolidators say right now, and they, you know, they, finally the burnout and everything else caught up to the point where everybody has to at least start talking about it. My question to the buyer would be, how do you measure that? This is the best question that you can ask from consolidator. If they're saying we're all about people, show me in your leadership team in a weekly meeting what metric do you look at about improvement of quality of life of veterinarians. And if they don't measure it, then that is not likely that they work on it to improve it. All right. Thanks, Ivan. So with the shortage of 
workforce in the veterinary profession and also increased pet ownership and all of the other factors that came along with COVID, hospitals are really overwhelmed right now. And so do you see a solution to that? Yeah, absolutely. That's what we're doing in uh, Galaxy Healthcare. So there's a couple of things that I think could be done. One thing that is pretty clear is that to solve the problem of not enough veterinarians with trying to find more veterinarians, you can't. It's, it's very easy. You see right now multiple, multiple emergency hospitals closing overnight. Uh, I think that Colorado State University Vet School doesn't have emergency department. Uh, well, they might have a department. They don't have their people for 24-7. I know that Atlantic Vet College, where I graduated from, now close overnight. They just told all the clinics that they can't service overnight because they can't find veterinarians. So trying to solve lack of people with trying to find more people when there's not enough people is not going to work. So you really need to think about scalable processes. They don't have linear dependency on number of people that work for you. And technology is one of the great solutions to that. If you can uh, use technology to scale veterinarians and uh, have more uh, done with people uh, by using technology, uh, I think that's an answer to it. The other thing that you can do is to optimize the use of paraprofessionals, so technicians, to actually facilitate appointments and everything that's happening inside of the hospital. I was just, again, I was talking to this new grad yesterday from North Carolina, and she mentioned that she has, so they're pushing her to produce more, but then they have two technicians for three veterinarians on the shift. So that is inherited inefficiency in amount of paraprofessionals that can help you. When I work in emergency, I need to have two technicians per room, and then I'm not limited by the number of rooms. I can service five, six exam rooms and run from one to another, and then basically you know, examine patients, take history, understand what's going on, and then rely on technicians to help me to collect diagnostics and you know, procedures and everything else. So utilizing more uh, technicians, and, and I think we need to start raising their pay, which is, let's say, veterinary uh, emergency group is doing dramatically, which I think is great. They're paying more to technicians. So we can't anymore treat them as a minimal pay. And the other problem that we have is that technicians don't work in our vertical for longer than 30, 35 years old because it's a hard work. And at a certain point, if you don't make a decent living, then you would leave this profession and try to do something else. So extending that career path. And then, so to sum it up, uh, the one thing that we're doing, we're using telehealth. And uh, that means we're using teleconsultancy, we're using teletriage, we're using telemedicine. And there are two, three different things. We have an overwhelming number of patients coming in through the ER doors. Half of them, or maybe third of them, don't have to be there. So people are waiting in the line for six hours to have a very simple advice that they probably could get otherwise. So what we're doing, we're, we're changing the way the whole business of medicine is conducted. Right now, the goal of every veterinary marketing department is to have more people to call your clinic number. That's essentially what happens, or find you. So the more people you attract through marketing initiatives, the more the phone rings, the more the phone rings, you want to convert it into appointments because you, you monetize through appointments. You don't monetize through phone calls. So you want to convert those phone calls into appointments or people that walk through the door. By using telemedicine, and we don't need more marketing right now, you can't have more appointments come into the hospital because we're all backed up in all the hospitals significantly. But by having telemedicine, and not separately, either telemedicine is or not, I think that by augmenting current workflows in the veterinary hospital by teletriage, 
So instead of having people come in for everything that they think they should be there for, then teletriaging using technicians and that those careers could be provided to technicians that don't want to be on the floor anymore and it's hard. So they could be working in teletriage and then after teletriage conducted properly, they can funnel them to either conduct a telemedicine appointment by veterinarians or send them to physical general practice or decide it's emergency and send them to the emergency hospital. And then the teleconsultancy appointments or telemedicine appointments then can lead to additional diagnostics that are needed. But then you can just send the patient that already been the history taken and then you said, okay, I need the diagnostics. Then you can send the patient to the hospital where they can have the blood collected, the x-rays taken and sent back to telemedicine veterinarian to finish appointment and finish the appointment with online pharmacy prescription. You don't have to have pharmacy at home. So you can actually really leverage telemedicine, but not in a sense that it's an additional thing to do for people in the hospital. It has to be an overarching additional structure that is above the entire organization that helps to triage and to take away some cases from that reception. So not push more through the hospital, but take away from the hospital and do it through online services. Again, you said earlier that you're against commission-based compensation. Others feel that it's a fair way to encourage and to reward hard workers. So what do you feel that way? So I would agree with your statement that it's a fair way to reward hard workers. But I think that in the whole goal setting for people, it is a, it is a very significant disconnect. When you're proposing to someone that you could work for X number of dollars, and then if you work harder, then you will receive, you know, X plus 10% number of dollars. Then in the person's mind, the expectation is that you already will be receiving what is set as that sort of extra bonus. And if they don't achieve it, very little people will be logical about it and say, well, I understand that I didn't perform that well, therefore I'm penalized for not performing that well. For the most part, people have an assumption once they were told the higher number of the two that they will make that. And there's tons and tons of research out there to say that bonuses through monetary instruments are not motivating people to reach their goals. For example, at IDEX, we came to the end of the year when everybody's paid bonuses. And I said, what do I need to do to, to have my bonus? And I was told by a colleague of mine that everybody gets bonuses. And I said, well, don't you have to perform? And they said, well, I, in my X number of years at IDEX, I never not received bonus. So the expectation is set. And if, if people didn't receive that bonus, it didn't really motivate them. So what we've done in our organization, we really separated the, the money from the basic needs. Because I think that the money and the relationship between the employer and employee that involves the salary is the sort of, of course, if you think about it in the slice of Maslow's hierarchy, the first two levels, the safety, the shelter, and the security is basically, that's the money. That's what I think money is doing. Then I need to be guaranteed certain things in my life that I am feel safe about. That's the money. But the goal setting to me in the Maslow's hierarchy, even though it's controversial, it sits in the two more levels up. The second, the third level actually is the sense of belonging. That's how you connect with your team with the core values and the purpose. And then the next one is esteem. So it's sort of the pride in what you do. And you can set goals for people that are non-monetary. So they reach those goals and feel good about it. And then once you separate the two, you don't have to pay bonuses to motivate people. And the way we're approaching that in Galaxy, we're actually paying the top of the market in a particular geography. So if anybody is offered a job in a clinic across the road, we just match that. 
And we don't celebrate if we hired someone cheaper than they are on the market. So then basically, if anybody says, I got offered another clinic and we're following the book, this is a fascinating book. I loved it uh, when I re read it. It's uh, called Rules of No Rules. It's about the uh, Netflix culture. They have a rule when uh, someone is recruited or headhunted from another company, Google or Facebook, they match their salary immediately. So if someone was offered a job in Google, they can go to HR immediately and say, I was just offered X number of dollars more at Google and Netflix immediately matches it. No questions asked. So we're, we're trying to apply that to Galaxy Vets because if someone offers more money and that, if that's the only reason why you're leaving, then let's match the money because that's, that's what market is paying. Now, on top of that, there's a motivation to do well as a whole. And that's where the equity is playing a significant role. Because if we're doing all together really well, we're accountable to each other because we're all shareholders in the same company. And we will do well as the end product of the healthcare system is having the shares in it and working hard to improve that as an organization, not as individuals. And there's tons of literature that supports that, that setting goals in dollars doesn't really help. It actually frustrates people. All right. That's really interesting. I also thought it was cool how you were talking about different levels for vets. And is that something that you would incorporate? I've heard a lot about level leveling systems for assistants and technicians, but I haven't heard about it for veterinarians. Is that another way that you would incentivize veterinarians? Absolutely. We have a we have a framework that we developed that basically accounts for several things. The specialization, of course, the board certification, years in practice, sophistication of procedures that you do. You can even take two GP doctors. When I was a locum or relief vet, I had a lot of people that were servicing the same clinics that they would call them relief vet with an asterisk. That's that's what they call them in British Columbia. That means the asterisk is I don't I don't work earlier than 10. I don't do surgeries or, you know, there, there's asterisks. And I was an emergency vet. I, don't, I didn't have asterisks. If you want me to re remove a spleen in GP hospital, I'll do it as long as there's, as there's a technician that can run an anesthesia. So I think that those different professionals should be compensated differently. The more spectrum of things that you can do and perform uh, comfortably and safely, then you should be compensated more. So we have this framework where it takes into account the specialization, the internship that you've done, the years in practice, the sophistication of the procedures. And then those are sort of the micro levels, but also within each specialty, let's say in ER. I always wanted to become a radiologist, but I just I was just too preoccupied, I think, with my entrepreneurial endeavors, and I never got there. But uh, there's no there's a huge gap between being a vet and ER vet, and then becoming a specialist. And but you could be a very skilled ER vet with a certain skills that you don't need extra specialists, and then you're adding skills along the way, sort of, as I call them, micro-credentials. So we are now articulating all of those micro-credentials within the, you know, your DVM. Well, what does that DVM mean and what you can do? The same for technicians, the same for uh, other paraprofessionals, management, and everybody else. We'll have those tiers built in. And then, yes, your pay will depend on that, depending on your region, top of the market, with that given skill set. Thanks so much, Ivan, for uh, your your perspective and sharing your experience and sharing your point of view with us. And so how can our listeners get in touch with you or what's the best way for people to reach you? 
Thank you for that softball. <laughs> so I mentioned a couple of times uh, bedintegrations.com. So that's where we write a lot about uh, burnout and our research in that. There's a podcast that talks about the management methodologies that we mentioned today. Galaxyvets.com is, uh, is this new healthcare initiative where you can actually sign up for being either an employee or if you have a hospital that you want to bring in to join us. I'm very excited to say that we had 180 applicants to be employed by us and to join us as a team in the last two months. And if you're talking about the scarcity and how purpose can drive people to it, that really shows that that people uh, are attracted to it. So vet, uh, galaxyvets.com. And if you can spell my last name, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to answer to internal message there. Very good. Thank you. I think this was a great discussion that we should have more often as a profession, because this is what it's all about, you know, burning out is no way to live. And there's a lot of pain in our profession when I think all three of us probably are convinced that it's the greatest profession in the world. There we go. <laughs> Agreed. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Ivan. If you liked today's episode, hit the follow or subscribe button. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.